Welcome to the Archways Podcast. Archways is recorded on the campus of Johnson C. Smith University and intended to support the goals of the Center for American Cultural and Race, which is housed on the campus of our partner institution, Guangdong Baiyun University in Guangzhou, China. The Center and this podcast are designed to help our Chinese colleagues and friends understand and experience American culture through the lens of race. Here now are your hosts from Johnson C. Smith, Dr. Brian Jones, and Dr. Matthew DeForest. Today, I'm pleased to say that we're here with a JCSU alumna. Uh, she graduated from Johnson C. Smith with a degree in English back in 2012. Uh, Sharika Comfort, who is a uh, recent degree uh, awardee from, I'm going to get this right, the North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, uh, which we, um, we just abbreviate as uh, A&T here in North Carolina. Uh, where she got a degree in English and African-American literature. Uh, Sharika has had a long and distinguished career uh, as a student, uh, as a spoken word poet, uh, as an activist. Uh, She is actually a former uh, president of Johnson C. Smith's student body, uh, where she also, by virtue of that office, served as a member of our board of trustees. Uh, So, Sharika, welcome. Or welcome back, I should say. Thank you. Thank you. And for our, our Chinese audience, could you begin with uh, with giving us a background of the Black Panther Party? Because you're here to talk to us today about the importance of the literature generated uh, by the Black Panther Party and the movement associated with it. Oh, definitely. The uh, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, as it was originally called, was started in 1966 by uh, Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. Um, they, it began as an idea when they were college students at our Oakland Community College. And uh, what they wanted to do was put an end or a, um, a cease to police brutality in lower income communities. And so they created a party to uh, essentially protect the people. That party had a 10 program uh, platform, uh, which included amongst those 10 points, the uh, 10 point program, self-defense. Uh, education, equal and adequate education for minorities, um, living conditions, and so pretty much the um, harsh conditions impacting lower-income communities, the Black Panther Party wanted to rectify. And what year was this? Approximately what year was this? I mean, the... 1966. Okay, 66. So yes. this is... Um... Um, this is before the assassination of Martin Luther King, who was uh, internationally known. Yes. Um, and w- when you say Black Panther Party, um, the the notion of party is inherently political in this country, and we, we associate it that way. Can you, you mentioned their 10-point program. Do, is this a group of individuals who will actually focus uh, on getting uh, elections won, or, or is it something different? Initially, they did not. Um, as the party evolved, they later had uh, two of the party's members, Elaine Brown, who was the first chairwoman of the Black Panther Party, as well as Bobby Seale, who was one of the co-founders, run for political office in California. Um, They were unsuccessful, but they did garner a lot of attention um, and support from minority communities. And so this was a West Coast originally phenomenon. It was Oakland and San Francisco, right? Yes. and uh, how long before the Black Panther Party um, as an organization begins to spread and move east and south? Actually, within its uh, within the first year and a half of the Black Panther Party, um, it caught on relatively quickly. 
Um, by the second year, they begin to organize chapters. Uh, the second chapter was actually in New York, um, or excuse me, LA and then New York. So the first East Coast chapter was in New York. Um, then they expanded into regions such as Chicago. They've also actually had a Black Panther Party in uh, Winston-Salem. So but these were concentrated then, uh, I say concentrated, what I mean is that they were centered originally in large urban areas yes. uh, with, with significant African-American populations, probably in the in the central city area. Yes. Um, a product of the Great Migration, uh, right, the southern uh, former freedmen moving north to find opportunity and freedom yes. ended up in places like Detroit and Chicago and, and other places like that. Good. And when those uh, industries... Uh, started to decline in terms of the labor that was needed as um, human labor began being replaced by machinery. Um, the employees of that of those factories and industrial cities, uh, primarily the minority employees, were left without jobs um, and sustainable income, creating impoverished conditions in communities. Um, and those communities essentially became targets, in a sense, for um, oppressive conditions. Was there was there any one event or set of events that prompted the the genesis or the birth of the party? The uh, set of events were a series of um, murders of by of uh, African American citizens by the Oakland City Police Department, um, as well as the Los Angeles Police Department of unarmed citizens. And um, in response to that, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale decided to devise the party. Um, in efforts to do community patrolling and, in a sense, put, uh, police the police. Interesting. And what was the response uh, initially by, or what was the response from the various constituent groups? And I'm thinking about several folks who would immediately respond to the Black Panther Party. I'm thinking about the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Martin Luther King's SCLC, sort of mainstream traditional civil rights movement. Um, by this time, Malcolm X is already dead, but the the um, Nation of Islam survives, right. and then of course, white communities in in the Oakland, San Francisco area, but also um, you know, what we might call pro civil rights politicians. Right. What, and there's a lot of people who can respond. What What are the kinds of responses that that come out of this movement? Uh, they were almost a um, so the Black Panther Party is actually spawned from uh, a lot of Malcolm X's ideologies. Okay. Um, and a lot of his speeches and literature are incorporated into the party's ideologies. And as a matter of fact, uh, his works are required reading or were required readings for the Black Panther Party constituents and members. Mm -hmm. um, now, initially, SNCC uh, was somewhat resistant because the Black Panther Party took an armed stance against oppression. I mean, as you know, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement advocated for peaceful protesting. Um, and so it was definitely a more militant response to oppression. Um, but eventually, SNCC leaders such as Stokely Carmichael actually uh, became members of the Black Panther Party and forged partnerships there. Now, in terms of political response, um, J. Edgar Hoover actually called the Black Panther Party the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, the FBI's counterintelligence program, which is called, or shortened the COINTELPRO, um, about 80% of that program and the funding for it was actually aimed at uh, dismantling the Black Panther Party. And so politically, uh, from Republican-esque groups um, and officials such as J. Edgar Hoover, the Black Panther Party was deemed a threat. 
um, and a force that must be stopped. So um, the when you said the SNCC, you, we I, I call them SNCC, right? The Southern right. Nonviolent Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, yes. if I remember right. And SNCC was the sort of organizational body which which coordinated college students across the nation, and they started they started at Berkeley, right? Uh, or no, that's the um, um, there was one that started at Berkeley in like 1962, the very earliest yes. version of this. SNCC comes a little bit later, I think, but but they were the nonviolent aspect of the civil rights movement. Um, yes. And when you say when you say more militant, I, I know what you mean, but I want to make sure that we're clear about what the Black Panther Party and its origins did and did not do. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, their re- response was that if violence continues to be committed against African Americans in the United States, um, nonviolence is not a tactic that will m- meet that threat and stop it. Yes, right. that is. Um, and again, that was heavily based on Malcolm X's by any means necessary um, ideologies and beliefs there. And so a lot of the Black Panther Party's beliefs were heavily influenced by Malcolm X. Um, as a matter of fact, Huey P. Newton, the co-founder, um, is actually often referred to as the heir to Malcolm X uh, because of those beliefs that are heavily entrenched in as long as armed measures are taken against minority and oppressed people, then those people must take those same measures to protect themselves. And J. Edgar Hoover, um, for our, our Chinese audience, was the longtime director of the FBI. Yes. Um, and Hoover was a very conservative figure, um, uh, stoutly um, anti-communist, right. but also a pretty polarizing racial figure or po- uh, st- issues on race. He was particularly polarizing on that front, was he not? Yes. Right. And and the FBI just to right <laughs> is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It is the um, the federal government's um, policing organization that looks at crimes that take place across state lines. Uh, our police forces here in the United States, uh, in terms of their jurisdictions, um, we have local police. So the police of Charlotte, Mecklenburg, uh, we have the State Bureau of Investigation of North Carolina, which looks at crimes that cut across um, city and county borders. And then for those crimes that uh, cut across state borders, Uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, and uh, certain other agencies. So the Secret Service, for example, uh, works with the U.S. Treasury Department but focuses on items like counterfeiting. Um, These are the different uh, police organizations that that we're looking at. So the Oakland police, um, who are involved in the initial starting uh, of the Black Panthers, uh, are in the city of Oakland, California. Uh, which is in the San Francisco area. Uh, but J. Edgar Hoover is looking at national issues and um, national level movements in a way that the police of Oakland uh, jurisdictionally would not be able to. So, sorry to interrupt. But. <laughs> so, um, when you described um, Malcolm X's ideology, could you talk a bit about what that was and the notions of black nationalism and, and how that translated and how that's um, how that connects to um, uh, the modern civil rights movement and the origins of the Black Panther Party? Oh, definitely. Uh, Malcolm X was a firm advocate and, um, again, by any means necessary. And what that means is anything that must be done um, to protect and preserve 
specifically uh, people of African descent or African Americans, uh, needs to be done by those people. He also advocated for um, working around or outside of the established structure, so the U.S. government, um, and not necessarily looking to the um, established laws of the country um, and the governmental system to protect people who, he, in his belief, it was never designed to um, guarantee and ensure rights to. Malcolm X definitely advocated for black nationalism and uh, creating sustainability amongst African-American people um, and within those communities, similar to um, other nationalities and origin um, origins and even religions. And uh, he actually became uh, converted into uh, the Nation of Islam while in prison. Um, and he claims that his uh, stint in the American prison system is actually what shaped his foundational beliefs um, and his re realization of the oppression of African-Americans came about in the U.S. prison system as he realized uh, more African-Americans, um, black and brown people specifically, were being incarcerated, penalized, and um, essentially forced into reduced labor through the prison system. And um, upon his release from prison, he began advocating for self-sustainable black communities. And so that's that's sort of the notion of black nationalism, that uh, African-Americans should be in control of their own communities, should, if you will, run their own stores, operate their own businesses, run their own political systems. So this was not um, integration right. in the traditional, in the way that, that King and others might have argued for it. Um, right. Martin Luther King is, is famous for this notion of, um, uh, of course, um, in, his, in his I Have a Dream speech about bringing people together and having white and black and brown and all shades living together, that all races belong together, we should take care of each other. But but X and, and those who follow him are not in that genre. They're, they're of a different viewpoint as to what constitutes freedom for Africans, African Americans in the United States. Right. Right. And uh, the Black Panther Party, again, evolved from those ideologies, um, and they took it a step further so that it wasn't... Um, it, specifically, the party's platform focused on African-Americans, but it was not uh, exclusive to African-Americans in that they also formed partnerships with um, oppressed white groups, um, impoverished uh, Hispanic groups, and they, were, uh, they actually had uh, partnerships overseas with the United Nations um, and other groups in countries such as China. Interesting. As a matter of fact, uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, as well as Eldridge Cleaver, who was also a prominent party leader, were invited um, overseas into the Chinese embassy and actually uh, sat down with several ambassadors there. And what would you know? What was the substance of that, I and mean, where did that connection come from? How does that how does that originate? Uh, they, the uh, Black Panther Party, actually get, uh, earned a lot of their funding or raised a lot of their funding by selling the uh, Red Books. Uh, Mao's Red Book. Those yes. Small. Okay. Good. And um, and so they, it was required literature for all party participants and members. Um, and just the uh, communist esque belief. Um, but they take it almost a step further there, and not just uh, communism, but more of like a social Marxism mm -hmm. type of belief there with the Black Panther Party. Interesting, because the the much of um, 
much of that literature would be anti-imperialist. And, I, and if I remember right, black, the black nationalist movement and, and others sort of relished the anti-imperialist nature, the, the, nation, the notion that African-Americans in the United States were living inside an imperial state almost, that they were right. living in a foreign land. Right. That they had been possessed and taken over by the other and are governed by the other. And that was a decidedly communist viewpoint, which was anti-imperial. Right. At least it was a Soviet viewpoint um, and yep. in China as well. And that's actually uh, one of the ways in which J. Edgar Hoover, um, amongst others, were able to justify uh, what later became targeting and uh, assassination of Black Panther Party members and leaders um, was by, under the guise that they were a communist group and they were seeking to protect America from being overthrown by communist groups. Right. And this is, of course, um, the high watermark of the Cold War. Um and uh, the 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 fear of communists in the United States was real. Yes. Um, and for, from the 1950s, we know there were some communist spies in the United States. Um, but this is also, and I think it's something we haven't mentioned yet, this is also the height of the Vietnam War. Right. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about the extent to which the the American war in, in South Vietnam contributes to the origins of the Black Panther Party. In terms of the... Well, I'm thinking about the notion that, uh, in particular, um, poor Americans, both black and white, are disproportionately drafted into the army and sent to South Vietnam to fight. Yes, that um, actually the war in Vietnam, a lot of uh, campus protests were happening um, in opposition to the war in Vietnam at that time. And the Black Panther Party actually assisted in the protests and demonstrations, um, along with the anti-war demonstrators, um, and were able to form several partnerships there with poor and oppressed whites. Um, and it also allowed the party to expand its reach into those other groups mm -hmm. um, under the commonality of not just race, but also oppression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. So a lot, a lot um, of the confluence of these um, ideas coming together about the civil rights, Vietnam, imperialism, communism, all this stuff starts to run together in the 60s. Definitely. How, does the, um, how big does the Black Panther Party get at its height? At its height, the Black Panther Party um, had over 20,000 members okay. nationwide. Um, so it's sizable for a sort of grassroots movement. Definitely. But it's not huge, I would say. I mean, would you, would you disagree? The Black Panther Party um, expanded. They had uh, chapters all over the East Coast and the Midwest. Um, they were actually expanding into the South, um, and which is one of the reasons why they were deemed a threat because they were gaining popularity rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and it allowed also for easy infiltration by groups seeking to destroy them. Mm -hmm. um, and each party had a chairperson. And so similar in the way in which um, chapters of uh, a national organization such as the NAACP mm -hmm. would be established, the Black Panther Party was able to do that. Um, and culturally, particularly in the black community, they became staple figures, um, even down to the fashion, where they donned leather jackets and the all black and, and the black berets. And so they became something um, to emulate and essentially assimilate into. And um, more often than not, 
um, at Panther rallies, they would carry firearms in the open as a sign of, um, uh, well, as a sign of pride and self-defense, I suppose. Yes. Right. That was sort of the more most common images of the Black Panther Party in the United States is just that uh, the black leather jackets, the black berets, and then and then rifles of some kind. Yes, right. And it was um, initially that's what the party was again based upon is armed self defense for the people. It was never um, a common misconception is that they were a police hate organization and that they targeted officers. It was always designed um, in its founding stages, the Black Panther Party was created to be a self-defense organization um, in the sense that they weren't actively and openly uh, targeting and harassing police officers. Um, on the contrary, they were actually seeking to protect citizens um, of police brutality. Yeah. And they are standing in a, in a long line of tradition uh, as far as that movement goes. So in our immediate local area, actually in the the city in which I live in, Monroe, North Carolina, um, was the place where uh, Robert Williams um, set up a very similar, very local movement that clashed with the police. And eventually he is uh, goes into political exile in Cuba. Um, but his book, uh, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, his book, Negro was With Guns, uh, is one of the, the key texts that the Black Panther movement looks to in, in terms of its uh, both inspiration for uh, the kind of self-defense you're describing, uh, but also to uh, to make sure that that there's an educational component that comes along with this, that if you are going to walk down these paths, you need to understand what the rules are, what the laws are, um, so that you don't uh, inadvertently cause problems for the organization. Right. In each of the uh, Black Panther Party chapters, um, there was a training system, um, a set of rules that each party member was governed by. Um, and collectively, they sought to not just arm, but also educate. Uh, the Black Panther Party also started a, a liberation school, several schools actually. Uh, most prominently, the uh, liberation school, one of the first ones was started in Oakland, California. Um, and it later became, later became uh, Oakland City School. And um, Erica Huggins, who was one of the school directors, the uh, Oakland School for Liberation. I'm sorry, that's the title there. Um, Erica Huggins, who was one of the directors at the school, later became the first uh, African-American African female on the Oakland City School Board. And so they had um, some groundbreaking and innovative ideas and strategies, even in terms of education. of the podcast and in fact the focus of our American Cultural Center um, in Guangzhou, China is a, it's about American culture and race. And so the basic idea is that we're trying to help um, a Chinese audience understand American culture and American race. Um, so, and this is a big question, of course, can you help us uh, put this uh, issue of the Black Panther Party into a broader context about race in the United States? And it's, it's evolution, of course. We don't have to go all the way back, but um, how this fits in the larger narrative of the American racial experiment and the situation. Uh, definitely. The uh, Black Panther Party 
as I mentioned, in its initial phases, sought to protect African-Americans specifically, although not exclusively, um, from unarmed, unarmed African-Americans from police brutality. Um, and it was a response to a problem, a systemic problem of African-Americans. Um, and in America, it's almost common knowledge at this point that African-American communities especially become essentially targets of police brutality, oppression, um, and just systemically oppressive conditions in communities, subpar living conditions in terms of employment, um, discrimination, and discriminatory practices. The Black Panther Party sought to alleviate some of those issues for African Americans specifically by creating sustainable communities. They did the uh, free and reduced lunch and breakfast. They passed out free breakfast within lower income communities because um, within the education system, one of the largest complaints is that African-American students do not perform um, at the same level as their white counterparts. And Black Panther Party realized that there are a lot of underlying issues that affect primarily African-American students that uh, white students and other races may not necessarily encounter. Um, for example, a lot of African-American students at that time and even today we're living in poverty. And so naturally, the amount of food that you consume, what types of food you are consuming, those types of things affect your intellectual performance. Um, the amount of sleep that you're getting, your living conditions directly affect your ability, your educational experience in the sense of um, your energy, your focus, uh, your stamina. And so they sort to counter some of these systemic problems within their own communities. Um, and these problems have existed since slavery and emancipation. Um, and one of the things that Asada Shakur, who is a Black Panther Party uh, member or former member, essentially writes about is how the uh, even the American education system is structured and designed to systemically oppress African-Americans and how uh, black literature, black history, uh, black cultural studies and black normalcies are frowned upon or left out mm -hmm. of the education system and how many things that are traditionally Af uh, traits, cultures, uh, normalcies that are traditionally African-American are left out of mainstream and uh, systemic systems. This 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 is a, probably a more difficult question. Is there a is there a predecessor to the Black Panthers in the United States? I mean, is there something that we look back at the past and say this is an early version of this? Uh, the Panthers emerge in the post war period, Cold War period, nineteen sixties. Is there something that's earlier in American history that might give us a sense of what's coming with the Black Panther Party, or is, are they completely unique and original? I think that the uh, party is, is drawn from several things. Uh, one of the connections in terms of even Black Panther Party speeches that was able to be drawn, um, Henry Highland Garnett, uh, who in his address to the slaves, who is a uh, former slave turned uh, ab or escaped slave turned abolitionist. Mm -hmm. In his address to the slaves, he preached resistance um, by any means necessary, similar to Malcolm X's ideologies. And mm -hmm. so when you think in terms of the uh, Nat Turner who led one of the uh, most infamous slave rebellions in Virginia um, and potentially in the United States. Um, I think that 
the Black Panther Party is an evolution of the spirit of resistance stemming as far back as slavery. Now, and, and you also mentioned just a minute ago literature, and so I wanted to give you a chance and for Dr. DeForest a chance to ask about your current project um, and your current work on this line, on this along this front, um, and the, uh, give us a chance to continue to talk about the party itself, but also about your your work. Yes, because you, you've you just completed an MA relatively recently. Yes. Um, congratulations again. Thank you. That focuses on the literature of the Black Panther Party, and it's, and you argue argue in your thesis um, about the importance of that literature and how it should have a, um, a broader and more prominent place uh, in the academy. Um, and one of the things we were hoping you could do is tell us a little bit both about your work and what you've discovered, but also where in the academy you think that these works of literature um, should be introduced and how they should be introduced. Definitely. Um... Marcus Garvey, who, as some may know, was an African-American who uh, advocated for African-Americans returning to Africa uh, post-emancipation and even during segregation. Uh, He once said, a people without knowledge of its past is like a tree without roots. And um, what that means, it ties into the old cliche of if you are not familiar with your history, you are doomed to repeat it. So at the start of the um, thesis project, it the idea itself stemmed from an assignment, a class assignment that was issued where we were told to connect a quote from uh, Henry Highland Garnett's address to the slaves to uh, a modern day revolutionary. And um, the most obvious connection, the uh, quote was, we must preach resistance, resistance, resistance. Uh, we are three million. And he was addressing the slaves um, in reference to the fact that at that time there were about three million enslaved Africans or African-Americans in the United States. Um, He was essentially reminding them or uh, bringing them to the realization that they outnumbered their oppressors at that point. And uh, we were told to connect this to a modern-day revolutionary, the most obvious connection being Malcolm X by any means necessary. Um, And so I began to research because I didn't want to go with the obvious answer. And um, I stumbled upon, uh, by chance, a similar quote from Asada Shakur, who is a Black Panther. Um, And her quote, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, is essentially, we must um, arm ourselves and defend ourselves. We have nothing to lose but our chains. And uh, Asada Shakur unlike Malcolm X, is uh, still alive. And she is actually a political refugee in Cuba um, where she was granted political asylum after being allegedly uh, falsely uh, prosecuted in the United States for the assassination or the murder of a uh, New Jersey state trooper uh, despite medical evidence that has shown it would have been physically impossible for her to have pulled the trigger as at the time of the murder her um she had severe nerve damage in her arm and so I started to read up on her story and just get some contextual knowledge about the Black Panther Party itself and um I started to draw connections to some of the current plights within the United States in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. um and with their attempted to protest the um 
series or string of murders of unarmed citizens at the hands of police, including um, popular cases, the uh, Air Garner, uh, Michael Brown, most recently Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, uh, those types of cases that are currently happening in the United States. And um, I wondered as I began to read this Black Panther literature, because again, the party was formed in response to these similar conditions. Um, this year actually makes the 50th year anniversary of the Black Panther Party. And I started to ask myself, um, I was at the time I, I was an HBCU graduate, historically black college and university graduate. Um, and I had never been introduced to this literature. And I, I began to question, well, why not? And what place or what difference would it make when we see things? Um, a popular debate is what should the Black Lives Matter movement actually be doing? And what is the quote unquote correct way to protest these injustices? Um, the Black Panther Party was arguably one of the most progressive parties in terms of creating sustainable communities mm -hmm. um, that sought to empower African-Americans. And um, within the thesis, I discuss how all of the party members at its peak, one of the uh, some of the oldest party members were under the age of 30 and as young as 13. So from 13 to 30, that's a wide demographic there. And they particularly targeted college students um, in terms of gathering support, organizing, protesting, leading these movements. Um, so, for example, the Chicago chair, uh, the chair of the Black Panther Party, Chicago chapter, Fred mm -hmm. Hampton, at the time of his assassination, he was becoming one of the most prominent leaders in the party at 21 years old. Um, and so the college setting is prime age um, and prime positioning to begin to cultivate leadership. Um, specifically, if you look at historically black colleges and universities, and within the thesis, I argue that this literature should be taught at historically black colleges and universities, especially because that student demographic traditionally has a population or student clientele that would be most impacted by these systemic forms of oppression, uh, police brutality, and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And so... In terms of where does the literature fit um, inside of the thesis, I also make the argument that it's cross, it has cross-curricular relevancy. Um, then there are elements within it that could certainly fit into any uh, composition course. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, Cheryl Greenberg um, actually writes about teaching the literature or using the literature inside of the classroom, um, as well as several other scholars have written about utilizing Black Panther literature in various forms in various classrooms, from our history classrooms to freshman composition courses, um, as well as African-American studies courses. The literature has um, a significant cross-curricular. Mm -hmm. For someone from, um, from China, for example, who might be uh, interested in reading one of these narratives, which, which narrative, which, which of these uh, particular works would be the best introduction or the best um, uh, approach to this? for of an international audience where, where should they go first within the um within the thesis i argue in favor of three texts um especially um so it's essentially as catalyst for 
provoking thought and change. Mm-hmm. Um, and those three, any of the three would be revolutionary, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, the three would be Huey P. Newton's Revolutionary Suicide. And again, Huey P. Newton is one of the uh, Black Panther Party co-founders. Asada Shakur's Asada and Autobiography, um, or essentially the, the autobiography of Asada Shakur, mm-hmm. um, as well as the autobiography of Angela Davis. Um, any of those three, I'm partial to uh, Asada Shakur's autobiography in terms of uh, laying some context for the uh, climate of the United States at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she writes a lot about her experiences, um, her grandparents on the beach in Wilmington. And so she has a, a wide range of experiences where she's experienced a Southern education and also later moves to New York and experiences a Northern education and what those differences are like for African-Americans at that time. Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, framing it and putting the climate in context, her autobiography is a great starting point. Um, am I wrong? Um, Asada Shakur, is that Tupac's mother or aunt? She's uh, actually Tupac Shakur's godmother. Godmother, okay. Yes. I knew there was some connection. I couldn't remember. Um, I don't know the extent to which Tupac Shakur is well-known in China, but my guess is yes, because uh, yes. American pop culture uh, thrives everywhere. Right. Um, and, uh, and Tupac Shakur is no exception. Um, so the Black Panther Party does exist today, Um but talk about its transformation and its evolution over the years and the challenge that it faced because the party is going to be is going to it was we already noted attracts a lot of attention uh, right. especially from the FBI and uh, and it, it has to evolve and develop and change and tell right. us about the sort of evolution of the party and how it how it's adapted and what it looks like today. Okay, not a problem. Now mm-hmm. there have definitely been um, figures such as Elaine Brown, who again was the Black Panther Party's first chairwoman. Um, who have spoken out against the uh, what's been deemed the new Black Panther Party, which is essentially a group that exists today that um, uh, operates under the the name of the Black Panther Party and calls themselves the new Black Panther Party um, and seeks to mimic some of the Panthers' strategies and ideologies. Um, but their actual affiliation with the original Black Panther Party is uh, relatively limited in the sense that it's not a direct derivative of the Black Panther Party. Right, so there's sort of a spinoff. Yes. Um, if you will. Yes. Um, and so the Black Panther Party, uh, after J. Edgar Hoover declared the party an internal threat, uh, this was around 1969, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he publicly denounced the party in terms of uh, deeming them, again, a threat to the internal security mm-hmm. of the United States. Um, and focused efforts and uh, millions of dollars in FBI resources to dismantling the party. Um, this includes unlawful arrests, um, infiltration of the party by FBI informants or hired informants, rather. Uh, petty crimes and petty criminals were given plea bargains and uh, deals to infiltrate the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. and essentially help with the dismantling of it. Um, and again, Fred Hampton, the Chicago chair, the Chicago chapter's chair, uh, it has been proven, and even from confessions from former FBI officials, that his assassination was, in fact, just that, an assassination by the um, FBI and the Chicago Police Department. 
they uh, entered into his home while he right. was asleep. And, uh, and they shot up the whole house. Shot, yeah. yeah basically, I remember this story. They basically shot the whole house up. The yes. bullet holes everywhere. Yes. Um, and uh, I saw, I've seen a couple of programs on that, and, and they've concluded that um, none of the shots came from inside the house out. Right. They all came from outside in. Yes. So, so um, that will have an effect on the party going forward, the death of Hampton and others, yes. right? I mean, that's it makes it difficult to operate when you're under such pressure. Right. Um, as well as unlawful arrests. Um their telephones, I know uh, cell phones are the big thing now, but at the time landlines were the primary forms of communication. Mm-hmm. So um, their houses, their telephones were um, wiretapped by FBI, and uh, false messages were sent back and forth between party leaders. The uh, Black Panther Party also had a newspaper, which was how they disseminated um, information to the public. And so the newspaper was attempted to be infiltrated, destroyed. Large shipments of the paper would be lost in transition. Um, and so a lot of uh, strategies and tactics were employed to dismantle the party. Um, one of the most prominent being unlawful arrests. To this day, there are um, still party members who are incarcerated on uh, trumped up or false charges um, brought upon them by local law enforcement as well as the FBI. Mm-hmm. And so the leadership of the party was either um, assassinated, arrested, um, infiltrated, and dismantled, essentially, by J. Edgar Hoover's efforts there. And so, um, of course, the modern civil rights movement will ha- will evolve as well. Um, you know, the, the, the days of nonviolent student protest in the form of um, you know, Rock Hill and Greensboro, that, that evolves and into um, um, different things along the way through the 1970s and 1980s. Where, what does the original Black Panther Party look like today? Not the new, not this spinoff version that we said has no affiliation. Is there, is there still a current operating version of the original Black Panther Party? Most of the party's original members, those who are um, still living and, um, of course, not incarcerated, are actually uh, university professors. Mm. And that's one of the uh, distinctions I make inside of the thesis is that um, simply their experiences alone qualify a lot of, or many of them, to hold the positions that they do. Um, So, for example, Angela Davis is actually a uh, professor in California. David Hilliard, the um, party's first chief of staff, is currently a university professor, um, along with several others. And um, so the original party exists primarily inside of uh, classrooms, believe it or not, um, as university professors. And they still uh, guest lecturers. They um, actually at uh, UNCG, uh, the University of North Carolina in Greensboro, on two separate occasions within the last five years have brought um, party members as guest lecturers to um, discuss this because it is a pretty historic period in American history that is often overlooked. Um, The civil rights movement in terms of Martin Luther King and uh, SNCC is often discussed, but the Black Panther Party is um, typically um, and traditionally left out of that conversation. Um, And it largely stems from the media's portrayal of them, which aligned with J. Edgar Hoover's attempt to portray them um, as a, a militant hate group to justify their destruction. Right. It's sort of the um, belief that there were 
two wings of the civil rights movement. There was the the acceptable wing, which included King and others, and then there was the non-acceptable wing, which included Malcolm X and ultimately the Black Panther Party. That, yes. That, that there were, if you will, good blacks, quote-unquote, and bad blacks in this right. particular movement. I mean, that's certainly how the government uh, saw them, and uh, I would suggest that even political figures saw them that way, too. Yes. They were far more inclined to work with um, the SCLC and the NAACP than they would with with the Black Panther Party or even um, Malcolm X and then later the Nation of Islam. That that simply was not an acceptable group, and as a result, they were targeted. Uh, right. And as you described it, very um, uh, very accurately, counterintelligence efforts, destroying newspapers, right. um, smear campaigns, right? All that is is pure counterintelligence. It's the same kind of psychological warfare that the United States government would use around the world, right. Guatemala, Iran, places like that, they used against against uh, the Black Panther Party. Yes. Fascinating. Although it should be noted that they also wiretapped Martin Luther King. Very true. <laughs> so it was a, it was a broad base, um, right. broad base issue. And also, it, I, just for the record, I did have to look this up. It's, it's not something at the top of my head. Um, for our, for our Chinese audience, um, we we don't want to leave saying that the figures who are currently teaching, um, it uh, whether it's out in California or elsewhere, um, it is part of the tradition. They went on and they did get advanced degrees. Yes. So uh, Angela Davis does have a PhD. Uh, she actually came to Johnson C. Smith and and spoke here. Were you here back then, or was that no. before your okay? Before my time. Um, but the they do have the academic standing that would. Um, would allow them to teach anywhere, right? Uh, but but they are they are noted and famous for their participation in in the movements uh, and in the practices you've been describing. Uh, as a matter of fact, little known fact about Huey P. Newton: um, before his death, he uh, actually earned his PhD. Um, in his book *Revolutionary Suicide*, he writes that upon graduation from high school, he was a functioning illiterate, um, and so he essentially taught himself to read, enrolled in community college, and then later went on to obtain his PhD. Um, and the, uh, as you mentioned, the Panther Party, a lot of them do hold the uh, necessary credentials in terms of education to teach. Um, and in many instances, prior, even prior to obtaining their PhDs, uh, for example, David Hilliard, their experiences um, contribute to the uh, effectiveness they are able to achieve inside of the classroom. say at this stage in American history that the Black Panther movement has a practical or a, um, a moral authority uh, in terms of uh, in terms of its encounter with the African-American community and with individuals like yourself who have gone on and gotten their education but still take a very uh, active and activist uh, stance in trying to improve the world around them. Do you see them as um, people who have a practical authority or that are uh, people that you would look to more for the moral authority, the inspiration, the the um, the the torchbearers of the past who in some ways uh, you're reaching down to pick up the torch and carry forward yourself? Um, I think both. Um, I think in terms of uh, practicality 
and implementing some of their ideals. Um, the Panther Party, Elaine Brown writes in her autobiography um, that if the Panther Party were to be viewed as a corporation, it would be a multi-million dollar business um, in the sense that they actually obtained properties and created sustainable systems and had uh, school buildings. And um, at one point, the Black Panther Party even worked with popular pop culture figures such as uh, Ike and Tina Turner in terms of fundraising um, and creating an entertainment company. They had uh, clubs. They had ideals where if you were going to establish a business within a black community, then part of your responsibility to that community was to donate a percent of your profits back into that community. So I think in practice, a lot of their ideals could also be implemented and sustained today. Um, in terms of morality, I definitely um, write inside of the thesis that one of the primary reasons um, in which I would advocate for teaching Black Panther literature inside of a classroom is that it also helps to promote a positive self-image amongst African-Americans. When you talk about race and racism in America today, a lot of the stigmas that exist surrounding African-Americans stem from how we are portrayed in popular culture. And prior to the two, the early 2000s in this reality TV uh, movement that's happening in pop culture, when you look, when you turn on a television and you see uh, African-American individuals, you're, you're seeing um, basketball wives and love and hip hop, which are popular. Um, some of the most popular shows on VH1 in terms of ratings um, and in reality television in general. And these shows have spinoffs. And so that becomes the image of the African-American um, across cultures. And it also helps to, um, when you talk about hip hop culture and Tupac Shakur was an advocate for uh, thug life and his mother, Afeni Shakur, was actually a Black Panther. And so when you have uh, African-Americans in popular culture portrayed as thugs and deviants um, or criminals, it's a lot easier to uh, justify, similar to what the FBI attempted to do with the Black Panther Party, um, assassinating and incarcerating them. Um, and so morally, I think the uh, Black Panther Party sought to uplift and promote a positive image of African-Americans and instill into African-Americans, um, despite societal oppressions and norms that argued otherwise, that they, they did have value and were capable of um, achieving great things. thoughts or questions on the, the party before we wrap up we're just about out of time what um what one thing because we we have a large number of english majors in china who are listening to this now um what one thing would you leave them with in terms of whether it, i suppose we could open it up past the black panther party you're you're quite a successful uh product of johnson c smith um <laughs> But it, specifically in terms of the Black Panther Party, if you would, what would you want to to leave with them as the one thing uh, for them to carry away about the literature of the Black Panther Party or any other advice that you may wish to offer them? 
there's power in words. Um, and I write about this in the thesis as well. One of the Black Panther Party's most powerful tool uh, was their rhetoric. Um, and they sought to, words have the power to unify um, as well as separate. And uh, one of the things that the party did was they were able to create a uh, sort of uniform dialect amongst the party, or rhetoric rather, for the Black Panther Party. And there are actually uh, studies on the Black Panther Party's rhetoric alone. Hmm. Um, and even the term pig, which was created by the Black Panther Party to describe the police uh, or local law enforcement agencies, hmm. um, was created intentionally and uh, purposefully. And Huey Newton writes about it in his Revolutionary Suicide Autobiography, how the when you think of a pig, you think of an animal um, who is not well-kept. And um, there aren't too many positive connotations with the term, the word pig or the animal itself. And so when they, they began to call the police pigs, it was done intentionally mm-hmm. um, so that the general American public would get the idea of the disgust that the African-American community often felt towards law enforcement. And just little strategies such as those um, help to unify people under a common language, whether it be uh, white, black, brown, or other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's power in words. And I think that English, because I was originally a music business major, um, and there, my love for words and language itself and um, literature especially, the way that you say things, the way that you write them has power. When you think about journalism and journalistic integrity, um, there's a reason why these things exist or these terms um, exist because words have power mm-hmm. and um, they have the power to uplift or destroy. Just a, a quick thing for our Chinese audience. I had to look this up as well. Um, the, the iconography of the pig in the West is derives primarily from the place that it, it is kept, a, a, a pigsty where they are allowed to wallow in mud, um, and, and therefore they're seen as, as more dirty, um, dirty animals. Um, and the, the, the pig coming out of uh, Chinese iconography, especially the Chinese zodiac, uh, is a different figure than the one then that we would perceive in the West. Um, Definitely. So that's that's the cultural background there. Definitely. That's a, um, a very good point uh, to make clear <laughs> before we close out that uh, the, the pig in other cultures is, 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 not, uh, is celebrated and, and recognized and revered and not so much in the United States. Right. right. Good. I'm glad you guys yeah. pointed that out. <laughs> um, I honestly was unaware of that. Yeah, that's uh, something I didn't even think about. So yeah, but, That's yeah. part of my job here. Right, <laughs> we do. That's, we're a team. Good, good. Um, well, Shakira, thank you so much uh, for coming. Um, uh, it's uh, been a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation about the Black Panther Party, and I think our, our constituent groups in China will enjoy it as well. So, Thank you for thank, having thank me. Thank you again for, uh, for giving us a good sense of, of how this actually plays out and uh, what this means. and. Uh, it's been very exciting. So congratulations on your MA. Thank you. Um, and hopefully we'll we'll have you back to campus soon enough to talk to our students about uh, Black Panther literature as well. Thank you. Okay. Thanks again, Sharika. Thank you.
just a lot of it's too much data. I didn't think so about data. the uh, conversation in other countries. It's one of the things that we um, we have to continuously kind of keep our eye and ear out for when right. we're doing these podcasts. Is that it's part of our job to to introduce them to the different culture and we spend so much of our own time locked at, locked in our own cultural perspectives right. um, that it that it becomes very difficult to to make these conversations I mean it's it's one of the things that in in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement a, right a great revelatory moment for me was when I finally wrapped my head around there was the and of course embarrassingly I'm not going to be able to remember the gentleman's name who was shot in the back of the car um, and the the first instinct of uh, his girlfriend in the front seat was to post it to social media Orlando Castillo right. yeah um, because it, if you are from the cultural viewpoint which I get to comfortably sit in um that the first thing you do if you're shot is to call 911. Right. Um, you know, why is she posting it to social media? Why isn't she doing that? Well, the people that you call 911 and they show up are the ones who shot him. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that, that cultural gap yeah. um, for, for an awful lot of people within our own country is something that um, that just flies over everyone's heads. You know, right. one, one side of the conversation says, of course she isn't calling 911. That isn't the instinctive thing you do. You do. Right. The other side, the other side is, is saying, well, the first well, thing you should, thing you should do, do is this, do this, and neither, and neither of them are paying attention to, to the, that their, that their instincts, instincts are the things that are different right. in, terms right. in terms of who you can, who you can and cannot invest that trust in. Even if there are any number of very good, very good and honorable, and honorable people in all of those emergency services, services. Right. Who, would, who would not do anything wrong. But if your instinct is to worry that the wrong one is going to show up, right. because, right. They're, because they're, they're there in much larger numbers than any of us would like to admit, it becomes a much different kind of a, a conversation. And it is systemic, even down to slavery, when a slave couldn't testify in court. 2016, we're still left with the burden of proof um, just on your word. Your word is not good enough. And so in every encounter, I was driving from Greensboro a couple days ago, and um, there was a guy who had been pulled over at a gas station. And black guy, white cop, literally everyone at the gas station had a phone out. And it's the burden of proof. It's not enough for... 10 black people in the parking lot to say this officer shot him but he wasn't doing anything. You have to have video evidence and then most of the time that's still isn't.
it's definitely, definitely a, a, cultural a cultural thing. thing. Um, you, think you think about Jonathan, Jonathan Farrell. He was he was attempting, attempting to get help, get help after, after getting into a, a, a car accident. He survived the car accident. Went to seek help and then was shot by the police. One thing, One thing we didn't get to talk about, as Sharika mentioned it in detail, was the China visit. So I'm trying to look it up to get a sense of what, who went to China and why. And it's sort of exactly what I expected. And again, thank goodness for Wikipedia in this particular case. Um, 1971, Huey Newton takes a delegation to China for 10 days. Um, and we're greeted by crowds of Chinese supporters waving around Mao's book. But they, but they had several, several sit-down sit dinners with delegations from North Vietnam, Vietnam and the um, provisional, provisional government of South Vietnam, which would have been yeah, the, 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 the Viet Cong-backed version. And then, and then uh, according, according to this, this at least, um, two, two, two separate meetings with, with um, Joe Enlai, who was the premier, uh, first premier of, uh, of the PRC, so he was sort of second in command, which is a big deal. But that's the kind of thing that will draw the attention of the FBI and the CIA right, right. and the State Department and everybody. Well, so it's a fascinating exchange. Uh, I'd, be curious I'd be curious to know if there's any papers from that. There's actually a, um, a documentary that highlights it in depth. Um, it's it just finished just touring via Black Panther, Black Panther Vanguard of the Revolution. Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, FBI interviews uh, as well as former party members. A lot of the remaining party members are featured in there and it talks about um, the rise, the rise and essential decline of the party, yeah. and even, and even um, um, the they have they have FBI, FBI documents, documents where uh, uh, J Edgar Hoover writes like we're attempting to prevent the rise of a black messiah, and a lot of these documents are accessible, are accessible even on even the FBI's website. website. Yeah.